You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Well, good morning. How are we doing? For those of you watching or listening online, thank you for tuning in. It's good to be back. I uh, feel like it has been forever and it hasn't really been that long. We left Sunday morning um, and went to Disneyland for a few days in uh, beautiful Anaheim, California. And by beautiful, I mean very overpriced. Am I right? Um, we got back Thursday evening and had one night at the house and then uh, drove Friday to Tyler, Texas, <clears throat> where I attended and spoke at the Mockingbird Conference uh, there in Tyler. Uh, we visited the Mockingbird Conference in New York City in April, and uh, I'm a contributor on their website uh, from time to time, uh, but was asked to actually speak at this event and uh, had such a great time, and, and it, was, it was really good to see. There were some, some faces from City on a Hill there as well, and uh, just an amazing, an amazing conference. The, the ministry that those people do are, are really just incredible, and so uh, spoke there, drove back yesterday evening, and uh, back with you again this morning. So I guess uh, out of the flame and into the frying pan a little bit, but uh, great week nonetheless. Uh, I want to mention before we begin our time here this morning that uh, one of our uh, just increasingly favorite people, Micah Millsap, who sang part of the song, uh, the new song, or I guess not the new song, I don't remember which one it was, um, you know, the guy that plays guitar, the, the, the very handsome young man that plays the guitar. Him and his wife, Risa, came to us a, a few months ago, and uh, more than that, six months ago, and uh, have been in kind of a process of, of healing from a previous church experience, and uh, Micah has taken another position as a worship leader at another church. We're very excited for him, and uh, so I just wanted to acknowledge him and his wife and their uh, involvement here. And uh, one of the things that, that we really love to do is, is see people be built up and sent out to do what God has called them to do. And, and uh, we're very, very fortunate to have uh, gotten to spend a little bit of time with them and praying for them. And of course, our doors are always open to them uh, as well. This morning marks the end of Coffee Cup Faith. I cannot believe it. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to believe. Uh, it, it, is, um, it has flown by. This is week eight uh, but we do, as I mentioned at the welcome, have uh, a lot of fun things planned for November and December. So if you're someone who's been wanting to invite someone else to church, you're like, man, I totally wish I would have invited them for this series. There's still a lot of opportunity, still a ton of things that uh, we're going to be doing. As I mentioned at the welcome, the, the worship in the round is going to be a really great experience, I think, that is, um, that is really built on, on worship, but also uh, really thinking about who God is as he's revealed in Psalm 100, and so that, that'll be a, I'm very much looking forward to next weekend for that purpose, and then of course Election Sunday will be fun. We're going to end the year with a, uh, a five-week <clears throat> series on uh, Advent, and if you're not familiar with that, it's kind of church language. We're just talking about the, uh, the coming of Christ, and then uh, we'll end that series with the second coming of Christ. So we're going to talk about uh, some of the prophetic fulfillment of Jesus and his birth and the virgin birth and, and the life that he lived, and, and um, uh, there's just going to be a lot of very rich things that are, are very Christmas-oriented for the last five weeks of the year, and uh, I look forward to doing that as well. I want you to think for a moment 
uh, about a, a time in your life, and it could be now, it could be in the past, but I want you to remember or think about a time where you were faced with a major decision. I mean a major decision, not the small day-to-day stuff, you know, what do I watch on Netflix, nothing like that at all. Major, life-altering, life-changing decision. Something like maybe moving out of state or changing careers in the middle to later part of your life where it's just sort of everything changes as a result of this one decision. Uh, Maybe if you are someone who is in in college, um, like you, you may have an experience that I had when I was in college, which was I went through two years of my undergraduate studies as a physics major, and um, it was somewhere in that middle to like two-thirds of the way through, I changed my degree and uh, switched to linguistics and, and loved that choice and think it was the right choice and it set me up for uh, things like seminary, but, but it was a major decision because there were a lot of classes I took that uh, all of a sudden didn't mean as much, and, uh, and it, it certainly changed uh, just the entire trajectory of, of my life. And so whatever it is, uh, you know, wherever you are uh, thinking of, some major life-changing decision, I want you to connect with the reality that usually when we're faced with a decision like this, it usually includes some kind of insurmountable stress with it, right? You begin to second-guess everything you're doing. You're like, did, what, did I make the right decision? You know, you just consider all the what-ifs and, 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 and you uh, imagine... That, that, you know, if, if you make the wrong decision, everything comes crumbling down. And so you're in this season of stress, and, and I want you to think now that you're, maybe you're in a Bible study, you're sharing it with the group, and a well-meaning brother or sister in the Lord says, hey, brother, I thought of you, or hey, sister, I thought of you this week when I was at the local Mardell, and, and, and I saw this coffee cup, and I, and I just thought you needed it. I just thought you needed it. And, and so you reach into the Mardell bag, and you pull out a cup that just in big letters says, strength. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just what you needed, right? I mean, immediately inspired by the all caps, strength. And, uh, but then, as, as you begin examining the cup even further, you notice that on the inside, you won't be able to probably see this because it's on the inside of the cup, but it says, be strong and courageous. So it's, it's biblical then, right? <laughs> That's how you know it's biblical because it has a Bible verse. It says, be strong and courageous, Joshua 1.9. Now, look, it's a nice cup. It feels good. I mean, it really feels good in the hand. Uh, it doesn't look terrible. Um, it's a generous serving size. I mean, it's my kind of coffee cup, I think. But there are a couple things wrong with this cup. There's a couple things that I, I, would, I would criticize about this cup. Number one, it doesn't include the whole verse. Uh, This is only a portion of Joshua 1.9. The actual verse reads, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, just to be fair and and, and not be just a total critic, it'd be very hard to write that, I think, just like around the entire inside of the cup. So, okay, that's fine, Uh, but it's not the full verse. But secondly, and this is really the major problem that I have with it, it doesn't emphasize the right message. Joshua 1.9 is not about strength. It's not about courage. Strength and courage are major aspects of this passage for, for sure, but they're supporting roles to the main idea of the passage, which is both one of our least favorite things to talk about and equally probably the most important part of our faith, and that is obedience. Joshua 1.9 is about obedience. 
Strength and courage play a part, but it's about obeying what God has said. And so I want us to jump in this morning and talk about the role of obedience. And as usual, before we do anything, let's look at the context of the passage. We're going to start all the way back in Exodus. If you're familiar with Exodus, uh, God sends the prophet Moses to tell Pharaoh, what does he say? Let my people go, right? Every VBS or Sunday school for children uh, probably has at some point quoted that. And of course, Pharaoh doesn't listen. God inflicts Pharaoh and Egypt with the 10 plagues, and this culminates in the 10th plague, which uh, is the angel of death who comes and, and takes the life of every firstborn in every home except for those who have the blood of the unblemished lamb painted above their uh, doorposts. And this signifies something that the Jewish people refer to as Passover because with the blood over their door, the angel of death sees the blood and passes over them onto the next house. This is where the name comes from. And of course, the uh, Jewish people celebrate this year after year. Jesus celebrates it with his disciples. He is the ultimate Passover lamb. But after this happens, Pharaoh relents for a moment, lets the people go. They, they take what little things they have. They travel lightly. They leave the same day. Once they're gone, Pharaoh changes his mind, and then he sends his entire army after them. And if you've, if you've ever seen the Prince of Egypt, uh, Moses, remember, parts the Red Sea, and the people of God escape across the dry land, and there's like the whales and the fish on either side. And it's really an amazing scene that I think they actually do a, a pretty good job of depicting. And, and of course, the Egyptians are quite a bit behind them, but they do go in after them as the seas are still parted. And once Israel gets back onto the other side of dry land, uh, Moses... in puts his hand out again according to uh, God's commands, his staff, and God closes the sea with the Egyptian army inside of it, and they all drown. Of course, the movie doesn't show that part. It's, it implies it. Um, but God wins, Pharaoh loses, and, and I love the end of the Prince of Egypt because it's just so dishonest. Uh, there's this... <laughs> There's this picture of Moses. Do we, do we have that loaded? There's a picture of Moses, and, um, and he is just like, like happily with the people looking at the promised land. And this is how the movie ends. They're, they're excited. You know, things have gone well, and, and we're about to go into the promised land. Now, of course, if you've read the Bible, it's not a happy ending. Um, <laughs> problems immediately begin to spring up, right? The Israelites grumble, they're mad about everything, they're upset with the conditions of living in the wilderness. They even begin to think about the good old days when we were enslaved in Egypt, right? And they finally get to the border of the promised land where that, that, that is on the other side of the Jordan River. And before they go in, Moses being a wise leader, sends 12 spies out to spy out the land, make sure that we're not walking into a trap, right? And, and so he sends 12 out, they come back, and the, the news that they receive is very disheartening. 10 of the 12 spies tell them, we should not go into that land. There are very hostile people in that land. They are going to fight us if we go into that land. And not only that, they are huge. They are giants. They call them the Nephilim, which are these very mysterious figures in the Old Testament that seem like they are literal giants, offspring of angels and men. They say, we were like grasshoppers in their sight. We're, we're, we're tiny, right? We're, there's no way we can fight them. Only two of the 12 say we should go for it. God is on our side. God has commanded this. We should do it. We should be obedient. Do you remember who they were? Caleb and Joshua. Yes. Now, because of the, re the rebellious spirit of the people, uh, they, they do not, they decide not to go into the land. God sentences them 
to 40 years in the wilderness. And during that time, the entire wicked and rebellious generation dies. 40 years pass. Moses is now very advanced in age. The people of God are once again at the banks of the Jordan, ready to try again to go into the promised land. And then Moses dies. Because Moses at one point was disobedient and God told him, you're you're not going to go into the promised land now. And in Deuteronomy 34, verse 9, this is the very end of Deuteronomy. It says, and Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. And so the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death and with, very importantly, Joshua's succession. And that leads us right up to this moment in Joshua chapter 1. Once again, they're primed to go into the land. There's still a very large, very hostile group of people on the other side of the river that are going to fight for their land. They're going to go to war with the people of Israel. And so God comes to Joshua and he reminds him of the same thing that he told Moses and Israel all those years ago. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. God is saying to him, yes, there's going to be war. Yes, the people in the land are very large. They're very big. They're very powerful. They're very scary. But I'm even more powerful. I'm even more scary. I will be with you in those fights. And all you have to do is be obedient to me. I'll take care of the rest. You see, obedience is central. It's a central theme in the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testaments. It's foundational to our relationship with God. In fact, it defines, I believe it defines the people of God. It demarcates the boundaries of the people of God. Uh, the, the Bible says that we are, as God's people, holy, which is a word that means set apart, taken out of the main, sort of the main group and set apart as our own people. So we are, we are boundaried. We, we are different. We are removed from the masses because we are holy. And that holiness is, is accomplished through obedience that God gives us the ability to live out in our lives, the power of the Spirit. I would go as far as to say, you cannot be a follower of Jesus and not be obedient. You can't. It's impossible. It's actually impossible. In the New Testament, Jesus says you, that you cannot love him and not be obedient to him. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, we often reverse that. We often think, okay, well, I need to love Jesus, so I need to keep his commandments. He didn't say, keep my commandments in order to love me. He said, if you love me, it it will follow that you will keep my commandments out of your love for me. Now, we won't do it perfectly, not not on this side of eternity, but, but the mere desire to be obedient to God's commandments is evidence of regeneration from the Holy Spirit. It reveals that, that God is working out this process of sanctifying you, of shaping you more into the image of his son, Jesus. So obedience, listen, is of the utmost importance. And so this morning, I want us to spend some time thinking about the role of obedience in our lives as Christ followers. I want us to think about what obedience was intended to do for us? This is a, a really important question. In other words, what is the point of it? Are, are we just simply to be robots? Do we just do whatever God says for no other reason than God has said it? 
Or, or is there an actual operating reason behind why God has commanded us to do the things that he's commanded us to do? Is, is it meant to impact us practically, in other words? I want us to consider that, and I want us to consider the difficulty of it, because it's not easy. It's very challenging to be obedient in a fallen world. So let's talk about it. What does the Bible say about obedience? A question you were not wanting me to answer this morning. Hooray! Number one, obedience is intended to bring blessing. It's intended to bring blessing. Look at Joshua 1, verses 1 through 4. It's a little long, but, but I think this, this illustrates well how this works out, at least in this story. It says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all of these people, into the land that I am giving you, to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I have promised to Moses." From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. So first of all, what is God asking Joshua to do? What's the commandment that he is to be obedient to? Verse 2 tells us, you're to go over this Jordan into the land that I'm giving him. That's the command. That's, that is what he is to do. Go into the land. In order for Joshua to demonstrate obedience to God, he's got to cross the Jordan River with all the people and go into the land that God was giving him. But the question is, why does God tell him to do this? And, and the answer is very simple. I'm not, I'm, it, I'm not trying to trick you. It's because God wants to give them what he promised them. He promised them the land. This goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, starting with his story. God begins to work with a man named Abram, who eventually becomes Abraham, and he promises him that I will give you land. You will be a people and you will have a national identity because you will have land. The people to this point have not had really a national identity. They've been bondage, in bondage in Egypt. They've been wandering around in the wilderness. Before that, they were wandering around in the wilderness. They have no real borders. They have no real national identity. There's no land. There's no permanent homes. They were wanderers. And now, after coming out of slavery in Egypt and 40 years in the wilderness, finally, for the first time ever, they're going to have a real home. They're going to have a place to build houses and plant vineyards, a place to build a temple and faithfully worship their God day after day after day. I mean, this is a tremendous blessing to them. This is what they've waited for for so long. In other words, get this. Their obedience to what God commanded them was meant to bring blessing into their lives. I want you to get that because it's always true. It's never not true. Whenever you obey God, whenever you obey what the Bible says to do, it will always bring blessing into your life. There's this idea. I remember because I had it as a young, you know, 19, 20-year-old that didn't know the Lord. There's this idea that the Bible is somehow this, this like big wet blanket, right? <laughs> that just wants to kill all of your fun. You know, it's like, I, I don't want to be a Christian yet because I don't want to stop having fun. I, I, I need to, you know, live a little more before I, before I settle down. You know, because once I become a Christian and I start living by the Bible, I'm just going to be this boring person that is never happy. 
And, and that couldn't be further from the truth. God's commandments, God's law were intended not to be burdensome. They were meant to lead us to an ideal way of living. The only reason the law is negative for us is because of us. We're the problem, right? We are the issue, not the law. The law is perfect. It's exactly James' point, James 1.25. He says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, he calls it the law of freedom. We think of the law as burdensome. He says, no, it's the law of freedom, the law of liberty. And he perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be what? blessed in his doing. He not only looks at the law, he not only learns what God has said, but he's one who perseveres in actually doing it. Now this word perseveres, it's the Greek word parameno. It's a word that means to remain constant in something. It, it conveys the idea that obedience is going to be challenging, but the one who continually remains constant in doing it will be blessed by it. They will reap blessing in their life as a result of that. Now, let's talk about this for a moment. There's a lot of ways this works out, and I don't want you to just have a sort of flyover view of, of, of obeying God brings blessing in your life. Let me give you some real ways this plays itself out. There's several kinds of blessing we experience when we obey God. How about relational blessing? Relational blessing. So let's consider this for a moment. How does God command us to relate to one another? Jesus uh, talked about the, the second of the two great commandments, Mark 12, 31. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in the way that you want to be loved, you should love your neighbor that way as well. That, that sort of sets the stage for relational blessing. But if that's too vague, Paul spells it out very clearly. Ephesians 4, 32. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's how you're to relate to other people is, is with kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. He says in Colossians chapter three, verses 12 through 14, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Check this out, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, you should blast them on social media. That's what he says. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. He says, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let me, let me just ask you a question. What would your relationships in your life look like if you lived this out? Would they be blessed? Of course they would. They would be full of life and trust and vibrancy. How, how would your marriage look, men, if you loved your wife according to what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 25 through 31? How, how would it look, ladies, if you loved and submitted to your husbands as he says in five, uh, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24? How do you think uh, your relationship with your kids would look, fathers, if you lived out Ephesians 6, 4? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You see, obedience to God's commandments with regard to how we are to relate with one another are intended not to be burdensome, but to bring blessing into your relationships. It's meant to make them better. You, you are intended to have vibrant relationships as a result of this. It's undeniable. Try it. It will work. I promise you. How about financial blessing? Ooh, we love this one. 
And I'm not talking about the same kind of financial blessing that you might see from a TV preacher. Uh, It is true, though, that if you live your life according to the Word of God, you will be blessed financially in some manner of speaking. For example, let me tell you how this works out before you freak out and think I've gone off the rails. James, last week, talked about finding contentment in Christ. He talked about that passage in in, uh, Philippians chapter 4, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Listen, if I am content in Christ and not other material things, it stands to reason I'm not as apt to blow all of my money on stupid stuff. Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Now, there is great gain and godliness with contentment. For we, I love this, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. I mean, this is the, so understand, if you live with a deep contentment in your relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not going to find value and identity in things that are going to cost you a lot of actual money, like bigger houses or cars that you can't afford. And as a result of that, you're going to have more money for the things that actually matter, like doctor's visits, because they cost a lot of money. There's relational blessing, there's financial blessing when we're obedient. What about, what about physical blessing in obedience? In a very real sense, your life will likely be better and longer if you live according to Scripture. Deuteronomy 4, verse 40, Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may, look, prolong your days in the land that your Lord, uh, your God has given you for all time. There's an idea here that if you obey God, your life will be prolonged. Proverbs 10, 27, The fear of the Lord, what does it do? It prolongs life. But the years of the wicked will be short. Oh, that that were not always true. Am I right? But then that would mean I would have died young and never came to Christ. So maybe that's not a good thing to hope for. The psalmist cries out to God. He cries out to God to save his life based on his obedience to him. Psalm 86.2. Preserve my life for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Again, I, I mean, I think this is fairly common sense. If you live according to the commandments of Scripture, you are less likely to find yourself in bad situations, and you are less likely to senselessly lose your life. You might lose your life, hear me here, you might lose your life obeying God. That happens a lot in the Bible, namely with Jesus, but that is not seen as loss in the New Testament. It's seen as honor and privilege. Look, the point of this is for you to reconsider what obedience means for you, to to reconnect with obedience in a way that is fundamentally different than how you think about it uh, in your natural state, in your flesh. I I want you to connect with the reality that if you love God, you will live according to his commandments and that those commandments are intended not to bring harm to you, but actually to bring blessing into your life. They're not meant to be a killjoy. Actually, the opposite is true. God's commandments are meant to foster and cultivate lasting joy in your life in a way that nothing else can because you will be living in a way that you were designed to live. So it's intended to bring blessing, but it's often difficult to live out. Can we agree with that? 
It's difficult to live out. And so second, let's talk about how obedience requires courage. Obedience requires courage. God tells Joshua to go and take the land, but it's still a scary prospect. There are people who are violent and hostile and very big in the land, and, and they, they don't really want to think about entering into a war with these people. And, and, and so God is going to come to Joshua and remind him, not once, not twice, but three different times to maintain courage and strength as he lives out this obedience that he has commanded. Verse 6, he says, be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Verse 9, have I not commanded you, Joshua, twice already? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In other words, Obedience requires courage. It requires courage. It requires something out of you. It's no easy thing. Otherwise, more people would be obedient. There's a risk involved, isn't there, to do what God has said to do, to live out what he commands in Scripture. I love the way uh, the English theologian G.K. Chesterton talked about courage. This is such a great quote. He says, courage is almost a contradiction in terms. Consider the courage of a soldier. He can only get away from death by continually stepping within an inch of it. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he, is cu- uh, if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he would be a coward and he will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then he would be committing suicide and he would not escape either. He must seek his life in a spirit, love, love this, of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water and yet drink death like wine. Ooh, had a way with words. Courage requires both a sincere desire to be obedient to God and yet a strange carelessness about the consequences that will likely follow. And hear me when I say this, there will be consequences. Living obediently will demand consequences from you. Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's not a life verse of many Christians, I know. If you desire to be godly, get ready for the flames. Now understand this. This is harsh, but it's true. The world hates God. It hates God's commandments. It's, it's not that the world is not convinced by the Bible. It's, it's not that they're, they're just, yeah, I don't really know where I stand on the Bible. It's that they don't want anyone to be convinced of the Bible because they hate the Bible. It's not that they are indifferent to the Christian faith. They hate the Christian faith. They are enemies of God. They're enemies of Christ. This is not my opinion. This is what God says in the Bible, apart from Christ, that all are enemies of God. Colossians 1.21, he says, once you, talking to Christians, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Jesus said to the wicked generation of his time in John 8.44, he says, yeah, we disagree, but we can still kind of get along, right? 
That's not what he said. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will, what you desire to do, your will is to do your father, the devil's desires. I mean, these are cutting words. The world hates God. It hates God's commandments, and it hates anyone who obeys them. So here's what it means. It means then to call out sin for what it is is going to require from you a level of courage. And often what happens is rather than living obediently to the truth of God, lots of Christians live with disobedience to it because we just don't really want to ruffle any feathers. Because we don't want to make our friends in the world mad at us. But listen to me, there's no neutral ground when it comes to truth. You don't get to sit on the sidelines. You, don't, you, you either live obediently or you're, you're, you're living in disobedience. You are either enemies of the world or you're enemies with God. Again, not my words. It's harsh, but it's not my words. James 4.4. 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Enmity, that's a, the, the Greek word ekthra. It's a word that means like hatred or feud. What he's saying is, is that quite literally when you choose friendship with the world over obedience to God's word, you're actually starting a feud with God. You're lining up against God and saying, I, I'm, I'm against you in this moment. He goes on in the same verse. He says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is heavy stuff, which is why it's important for us to understand that obedience is going to be difficult. It makes the world mad because the world hates God. It hates God's word. And it hates anyone who believes it or obeys it. And so if we're going to obey the scripture, if you're going to live a life of godliness, it's going to require something out of you. It's going to require courage. You're going to need to be reminded that God is with you on a day-to-day -day basis, that you're not alone. In the same way that God was with Joshua, God said to Joshua, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That was true for Joshua. It's true for us too. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28, verse 20? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's never a moment in your life as a Christian when you are alone. There's never a moment in your life when you are faced with difficult decisions, where you are going to have to have some kind of courage to do what is right, where you are doing those things alone because the Spirit of God you are promised and filled with from the moment that you believe the gospel will be with you and thus the presence of Christ is with you everywhere to the end of the age. So obedience, it's meant to bring blessing into our lives, but it requires courage to carry it out. And last, obedience is defined by God's word. Verses seven and eight. So, so understand this, that for Joshua, being obedient was literally just doing what God said to do, obeying God's words to him. And then verses seven and eight, it becomes even clearer. Verse seven, he says, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Did you get that? Obedience for Joshua was not simply going into the land. That was a major part of it. It was crossing the Jordan River and going into the land. But obedience ultimately was doing what the law of Moses said to do. 
It's, it's, in other words, it's following scripture. Verse 8 continues this. It emphasizes it even more. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So follow the sequence here of obedience, because this is, I think, just as applicable for us today as it was then. First, we need to recognize Obedience begins with learning the word. It begins with learning the word. In order for us to obey what God has said, we need to know what he said. Obedience isn't simply doing whatever we think God wants me to do. It's doing what he has said to do. If you want to live a life of obedience, we need to know what he said. So often I'll hear Christians talk about this. You know, well, I'm just, you know, I, I feel like this is what God's wanting me to do, and so I'm just trying to be obedient, you know. I'm trying to, you know, like maybe it's a changing job or changing churches or, 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 or buying a house, and, you know, I'm just trying to be obedient. It's what I think God is telling me to do. That's not obedience. Like, stop throwing God under the bus for your own desires. They may not be bad things, but that's not obedience. Obedience is learning what Jesus has said and then actually doing it. So it begins with learning the word, but if you're anything like me, we can be very forgetful. We can learn what God said in one ear, out the other. And so secondly, obedience is sustained by meditating on the word, by meditating on the word. Now, when I say meditation, I do not mean crossing your legs and humming. <laughs> the word meditate, it's the Hebrew word hagah, and it's a word that means to mutter to mutter something, kind of muttering under one's breath. The idea of meditating biblically from, a, from an Old Testament and into the New Testament perspective is memorizing Scripture, because remember, in the ancient world, you didn't have a handy Bible app on your iPhone. Um, you didn't even really have a fully bound Bible. You were lucky if you were able to come into contact with any scrolls of the Bible at all. And if you were, it was more than likely like one single book. So meditation and memorization were major aspects of the ancient life for believers. This is how they thought about God's word. They memorized it. So they would memorize it, and then they would recite it over and over and over again under their breath at all times. This is why God says to Joshua, quite literally, this book of the law shall not depart from what? Your mouth. But you shall meditate on it. Why? so that your obedience will be sustained, so that you will remember what I have said to do, and you won't go to the right or the left, but you will stay on course the entire time. He's saying, you need to be careful, Joshua, to do everything that is written in this book. So meditate on it. Keep it front and central to your life at all times. So you learn the word of God in order to learn what obedience looks like, you meditate on the word of God in order to continue in your obedience lest you stray away to some other thing. And what did we say obedience brings when we actually live it out? Blessing. Or in this verse it says prosperity and great success. And again, prosperity and great success doesn't mean getting the, the, the promotion at work. It doesn't mean winning the lottery. It doesn't mean, it might mean that. I mean, praise God for you if, if it does. Uh, you know, be generous. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, but that's not necessarily what it means. It, it, might, it might just mean living a fulfilling life as a follower of Jesus. 
it might mean death. And I wonder what the church would look like and what specifically America would look like if the church viewed prosperity and success as simply knowing God and and loving God and doing what God has commanded us to do even when it's hard. I wonder how contentious the world would be. I, I suppose it will always be contentious because the New Testament seems to indicate that it will always be contentious and it will continue to become more contentious. But I I just can't help but shake the feeling that if God's people thought about obedience in terms of blessing, but, but more than anything in terms of just responding in love to a God who loved us first, I wonder how, how that might change the church's impact on the world around us. And I want to close with this. I want want to say this to you. You know, part of my job here comes with a great amount of tension between trying to convince you of the, the utter importance of being obedient to Christ and how it is ultimately very beneficial for you, while at the same time recognizing and acknowledging that you are not going to be obedient at all times. So it's, it's very difficult, right, to, to try to convince you that, hey, this is really important and you need to do it every day. And also, you're not going to do it every day. It's almost paradoxical. There's a lot of tension there. But what I, but I want to impart to you is that when you do fail, and you will, in your obedience to God, you can actually practice obedience in your failure by confessing your failure and repenting of it. That's the beauty of of God's word, is that God assumes because of sin, you will fail, you will fall short, you will sin. And so he gives us commandments like the ones we find in James 5, to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed. So when you find yourself in these moments of disobedience, Rather than being ashamed, rather than wondering whether or not God still loves you, God will, if if you are his, if you have believed the gospel, if he has filled you with his Holy Spirit, he loves you and he will always love you. That's his promise. No one takes you out of the Father's hands, Jesus says. You will always belong to him. And so in those moments, rather than running, you can begin to actually practice obedience right there in that moment by confessing it, praying, having someone pray for you over it, and then moving on and forgetting about it, because God has. Those things are, in my experience, have brought some of the most rich blessing to me, is just receiving forgiveness, being reminded of the forgiveness I have in Christ and my failures. And my prayer for you is that you would find beauty in that as well. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are a God who is gracious and kind, that you are uh, forgiving, that you are all loving, but that you call us to a standard. And that that standard is not meant to be something that is harsh or or, uh, disheartening or not fun, not fulfilling, but actually the opposite, that, that your standards and your statutes and your commandments are meant to lead to the ideal life you designed us for. Would we see that and, and would we believe that, that we might begin to walk in it as well?
how we love you, how we honor you, and we thank you that you have used broken people like us to bear witness to you in this world that hates you. We pray for uh, any and every person that comes to City on a Hill or that comes in contact with uh, a member here of City on a Hill that they would, more than anything else in their disagreements, see very clearly the evidence of the help, hope, and healing of Jesus in that person's life. And that they may hear the gospel through their testimony. And as all of us have experienced, be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. How we love you and we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week for a very special service. Hope to see you there.